Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. 
but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he is to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons, and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barely there, barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me once again. Father, as we come now to consider your holy word, we would ask that your spirit would illuminate for us this text, this chapter of the Bible that we've just read together. And God, that you would continue instructing us through the books of Samuel, that God, you would continue leading us deeper and deeper in our faith, deeper and deeper into our knowledge of you, the one true God, and deeper and deeper into the Christian life that we might glorify you and honor you with the way that we live. So God, bless us in our time together in your word this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, this chapter is uh, admittedly a little bit confusing at first when you read it. You're kind of like, what all is going on here? What's happening with this story that's made up and told to, to David, the king? And it's a little bit confusing at first to fully grasp all that's going on. Uh, but for sure, it's going to be utterly confusing to you if you don't know anything of what has come, especially in the last chapter that we just covered 
last Sunday. And so I want to just briefly bring us up to speed, especially for any who are visiting here this morning and you weren't with us in the last chapter. I'll just say it this way. Last chapter was gnarly. Okay. It was a heavy chapter. One of the heaviest chapters you'll find in the Bible, quite honestly, because Amnon, who was a prince in Israel, raped his half-sister Tamar. Okay. And her father, King David, found out about it. And he was furious, like you would expect him to be, and yet he did nothing. He took no action against Amnon to rectify the situation. And so after two years, her full brother, a man named Absalom, who features prominently in this chapter, took matters into his own hands, and he went and he murdered his half-brother Amnon uh, to make things right, so to speak. It was an act of revenge. And the chapter ended with Absalom, after murdering his half-brother, fleeing out of the land of Israel to the kingdom of Geshur, which he has now dwelt in for three years. Now, I've been invited to preach many places, but I'll tell you, I've never, ever brought a sermon from 2 Samuel chapter uh, 13 to any of those speaking engagements. Because it's just a heavy chapter. It's a difficult, gnarly story. It's, it's truly a complicated mess. You have a royal family in disarray. You have a, an heir to the throne who's now living in exile. And you have a grieving father who is unsure of how to move forward. And all of this is the background story to the chapter that Daniel just read for us here this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Being Mother's Day, maybe this is a good time to pause and be reminded that there are no perfect families. I mean, David is a man after God's own heart. David is rightly revered as a spiritual father, a father in the faith. And yet you look at his own family and the impact that human sin had on it. And guys, because we're all sinners and you're married to a sinner and you've given birth to sinners, There's going to be sin in our families, and there's going to be issues in our families. And I think sometimes a day like Mother's Day or Father's Day can kind of highlight this expectation that everything should be perfect and maybe even point out areas where we have fell fell short or we might feel guilty over or convicted about. But it's good for us to be reminded there are no perfect families. And so we pursue the Lord, we study God's word, we do our best to apply it, And we trust that God gives more grace. So take a deep breath here today. Now moving into chapter 14, verse 1 tells us that this man, Joab, who is King David's nephew, and he's also a leading general in the nation, Joab is aware of the king's heart for his son Absalom. The Hebrew could be translated here in verse 1 that the king's mind was on Absalom. So Joab knows that the king's mind or his heart is on his son Absalom. As I mentioned, for three years, his son has been in exile. And as a father, David must have felt mixed emotions about all of this. On one hand, he was angry with Absalom. Absalom had murdered Amnon, David's other son. But on the other hand, as the years had gone by now, and the grief of losing his son had lessened, David is probably beginning to question whether effectively losing a second son through a a permanent banishment is the best thing. 
Not to mention, David probably sent some level of responsibility over Absalom's actions. Since, as we learned last week, David did nothing to rectify the rape that had happened to Tamar. But it's not just the father, fatherly considerations that are occupying his mind. The woman of Tekoa, who we read about in this chapter, tells her story about her son who killed the other son, and their surviving son is called her heir. It's likely then that Absalom is David's heir as well. What that means is that there are massive political considerations going on here in this chapter. It does not bode well for the future of the kingdom of Israel to have the king and the crown prince estranged from each other. And so this is a very, very heavy situation. Besides all of that, David is getting on in years. He's an older man by this point in his career. So Joab knows what's at stake. Joab knows what's on David's mind. And verse 22 implies that Joab has tried to have conversations with David before about getting Absalom back to Jerusalem. But up to this point, it hasn't worked out. And so now, here at the beginning of chapter 14, Joab makes another attempt at reconciliation. And it occupies the first 23 verses of this chapter. There's an attempted reconciliation. Now, because David had not followed Joab's advice up to this point, as Joab has pleaded with David to bring his son back from Geshur, Joab knows that he cannot just personally advocate for Absalom's return. But he's a clever and he's an astute statesman. So he thinks up a plan. He says, here's what I'll do. I'll solicit the help of a woman of wisdom from Tekoa. Tekoa is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. David would not know who this woman is. And so he brings this woman and he, share, he wants her to share a made-up story with King David that will force him into committing to bring his son Absalom back home. Look at verse 2 again. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, <clears throat> Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king, <clears throat> excuse me, go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So notice Joab writes a script for her. He takes care of all the wardrobe considerations. Hey, dress like this. He even gives her a little bit of acting lessons. Hey, you need to act like a woman who's been mourning for a long time. So he, he sets this woman up for the role that she's going to play. And then he sends her in to meet with the king. And when she meets with King David, she says in verse 4, Save me, O king. So David is aware immediately there's a woman in crisis. There's a woman looking to me as her king to bring relief to her situation. And then she tells her story. And it is a total tearjerker, right? Here's this woman. <clears throat> and she's a widow. Okay, she has lost her husband. So she's a woman who is living with grief. Serious grief. She's lost her husband. And in ancient Israel, this would mean that this was a very vulnerable woman. She's in a vulnerable place in society. So her husband is dead. She's a widow. But not only that, she had two sons. 
But the two sons got into a fight or a quarrel out in the field. And in the the course of that fight, the one son struck the other son with a blow that proved to be fatal. And her son died. So now she's lost her husband. Now she's lost one of her sons. And then to complicate it even worse, her clan that she's a part of is now demanding that her one surviving son be put to death for killing his brother. I mean, this is a woman who is on the verge of losing everything. As she puts it in verse 7, if they put her son to death, she says, they will quench my coal that is left. So, I mean, think about the fire, and there's just that one little coal that's just burning, and that's what the son is to her. She says, man, if, if he's killed, the whole fire has gone out. Could anything possibly be worse for a mother? Again, she's lost her husband, she's lost one son, and she's on the verge of losing a second. And so she appeals to the king for his verdict, and she begs for mercy for her son. Now, her extenuating circumstances make an emotionally compelling case, to be sure. She's going to be left with no one. She's going to be left with nothing. And not only that, as she points out, her husband's name is going to be erased from Israel. She's going to have nobody to continue the family name. What will David do? What's the decision he's going to render? Well, verse 8 tells us what David attempts to do. We'll read it again. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. So David basically says, just go home and don't worry. I'll pass a judgment and I'll, I'll, I'll make a decision regarding your particular case. But she's not okay with that. She needs to press the envelope a little bit further. So here's what she says in verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. What's she doing here? Well, she's trying to further persuade David by assuring him in this moment that if any guilt might result from a decision that he makes in her favor, she's saying, all that guilt's on me. Your throne is guiltless. I will take responsibility from that. This would free David from feeling any hesitation to postpone the decision until he gets all the facts straight. And at this, David rules in her favor, and he swears on an oath that he will protect her son. Not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. And friends, at that moment, the trap is sprung. She's gotten David where Joab wanted her to get him. Look at verse 12. She pivots now. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. This is a very brave woman. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. I mean, again, this is a brave woman. She's a wise woman from Tekoa, but she also has some serious backbone. She's talking to the king and she says, you are condemning yourself, you're convicting yourself with the judgment that you just passed in my situation. She points out that his situation with his son impacts the whole nation, all the people of God. Unlike her situation, which only impacts one small clan in the nation. Her point is the crown prince needs to be brought home and things need to be worked out. The future well-being of the people of God depends on it. 
<clears throat> now, verse 14 is extremely difficult to interpret, which is unfortunate because it really is her punchline. It's like the most important thing she's trying to say to David, but it's a challenging verse to interpret. Let's read it together and we'll talk about it briefly. She says to him, we must all die. <clears throat> we are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away, take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. It could be that what this woman is suggesting here <clears throat> is that Amnon, David's son who died, like all of us, will face death. Okay, everybody's going to die, she's saying. And then she says, and, and once somebody does, like Amnon, that person can't be brought back again. She's saying it's like water. Once it's spilled on the ground, you can't gather it back up again into the cup. It's, it's done. It's over at that point. And therefore, she's saying to David that he, just like God, should devise means of bringing his banished son, Absalom, back home. So it seems like her argument goes something like this. She's saying to the king, if you, David, are willing to allow the son, or my son rather, to go unpunished for killing his brother because of extenuating circumstances, how could you continue punishing Absalom for killing his brother considering the extenuating circumstances? And the circumstances were extenuating. Absalom's brother raped his sister, and King David did nothing about it. Could not David empathize with Absalom's situation the way that he was empathetic with this woman and her son in their situation? Well, before David could make any determination about Absalom, the woman quickly turns back to her own story. <clears throat> Likely, she's trying to save face and kind of keep up appearances that, that her story's not fictitious, that she really did come to David to seek judgment. So she turns back to her story in verse 15. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. So she's, she's here after she's said something really bold, really courageous, and really convicting to David. She pivots back to her story and she says some flowery things at the end there. Right? Like, you, Lord, you, you King David, are like a messenger or an angel of God <clears throat> discerning good and evil. But this statement is loaded with irony when you stop and think about it. In the story, it's this woman who's referred to as the wise woman, not David. <clears throat> not only that, but she's just manipulated David with this story that her and Joab made up. Now, for some of you who know the story of 2 Samuel, this whole encounter here brings you back to chapter 12, when God sent the prophet Nathan to share a story that was made up with King David in an effort to bring David to his senses and bring about the result that God wanted there. But both times, David is unable to make the connections between the story that is told to him and his own life circumstances until 
He's already trapped himself with his own words. Now, what's interesting to consider is that in Nathan's story, David detects the hand of God at work. And ultimately, Nathan's story leads to confession of sin, repentance from sin, and restoration in David's life. But notice here that with this woman's story, David detects the hand of Joab. And the way that the story works itself out is not so positive. Look at verse 18. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Now, Joab's probably waiting in the wings during this conversation. I mean, he arranged the meeting. He sends her in to talk to King David. Maybe he's standing behind some curtains listening or right outside the door. And I'm sure when David asked this question, Joab just, it's like, "Uh uh-oh, am I going to get in trouble here? David knows that I'm the one who's been behind the story. David's able to put the pieces together. But the woman does reveal some motive here in verse 20. She explains to David what Joab was trying to do. Look again at verse 20. She says, in order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. In other words, what Joab was trying to do is just bring Absalom back home. Joab wants his king and his prince to be reconciled. He doesn't want them to continue being estranged. And it appears at first that he gets exactly what he wants. Look at verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Dropping down to verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. So Joab must be so relieved here. Finally, King David agrees to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. And just as everything looks like it's working out, we realize that things might not be what they seem. Look at verse 24, and we'll reflect on this section. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Absalom is brought into the proximity of the king. But he is not brought into relationship with the king. And this, according to verse 28, is going to be the way things stand for the next two years. Again, Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem, but him and David are not brought together. Far from being full reconciliation, what Joab is able to achieve here is a fragile reconciliation at best. And we'll see that in the remaining verses of this chapter. The situation here is very messy, as I've been saying. And now we see that King David is not able to bring himself to treat Absalom like a murderer. Okay, he doesn't give him the death penalty. After all, David himself was guilty of murder, was he not? And yet the Lord put away his sin. And wasn't his murder of Uriah much worse than Absalom's? 
He murdered Uriah for what purpose? To cover his own sin and to save his own reputation. Absalom murdered Amnon for the sake of Tamar's reputation. So how in the world could David in good conscience treat Absalom as a murderer and give him the death penalty? David couldn't bring himself to do that. But David also couldn't bring himself to treat Absalom as an innocent man and be fully reconciled to him. Absalom usurped David's authority by stepping in and avenging Tamar's rape. And now his son Amnon is dead as a result. He is frustrated and he is angry. So this is a torn father and king. And I think this is a great time to pause and think about this compromised arrangement that David sets up here. Again, he's unwilling to make a decision. Is Absalom a murderer or is Absalom innocent and worthy of being reconciled? And so he sets up this, again, this kind of uh, compromised arrangement where Absalom's in Jerusalem, but David won't see him. There's a lesson for us here. Maybe you find yourself estranged from somebody in your own life. Could be a family member you've been estranged from. Could be somebody at work. It could be a friend. It could be a neighbor, a former business partner. One of you has wronged the other, and the relationship is estranged. There's a wedge that has been driven between you. What we learn here in this first section of this chapter is that attempts at reconciliation that try to achieve the outcome of reconciliation, which is what? It's two estranged parties being brought together again. So attempts to achieve the outcome of reconciliation, but fail at addressing the root cause of it, are doomed to fail. Joab here gets Absalom home, but he doesn't get to the root of the issue. And so David and Absalom are still estranged, even though they're neighbors. The goal of reconciliation is not to get two people in the same room together again, tolerating one another. If someone in the church sins against you, reconciliation does not mean that you're able to show up to the church, completely ignore each other, or maybe put on fake smiles and waves from a distance, But then we all sit back and go, well, at least they didn't kill each other. That's a success. They've been reconciled. Everything's great now. No, it's good that they haven't killed each other. We'll agree with that. But family, that's a far cry from reconciliation. Or if someone in your family sins against you, reconciliation is not getting you both to be able to show up together to the next family function, but again, completely ignore each other. And everybody go, well, there wasn't a fight that broke out. This didn't blow up in our face. They didn't make a scene. That's not reconciliation. It is better than hating each other to the extent that you want to kill each other, for sure. But it is not reconciliation. And I'll say this, that will never solve the problem. It'll just continue to drive the frustration and the anger deeper and deeper in both of your hearts. Reconciliation is a familial term. Reconciliation refers to a broken relationship being repaired. It speaks of people who are estranged because of sin and conflict being brought back together again in relationship. And reconciliation is predicated on confession of sin and repentance of that sin from the offending party, the one who has committed the sin, 
as well as forgiveness being extended by the offended party, the one who has been sinned against. That's the foundation. The conversation has to happen. The sins have to be acknowledged and owned and repented of. And forgiveness has to be extended. That's the only foundation that reconciliation can be built on. Now, of course, that does not mean that the relationship is instantaneously repaired and everything goes back to the way that it used to be immediately. Depending on the gravity and the nature of the sin, it may never get back to what it once was. And for extremely egregious sins, it will likely never get anywhere close to what it once was. But it does mean that there is a foundation laid for a relationship. And over time, trust can begin to be restored. And where once hostility existed between you two, friendliness can begin to reform. Now, for some of us this morning, all of that might sound like too much to handle. Perhaps like Tamar from our last chapter, you've experienced unthinkable injury as the result of somebody's sin. Unthinkable evil at the hand of another person. I don't pretend to know the challenges of even entertaining the thought of being reconciled with a person who's done something like that to you. But I do know the power of entertaining thoughts of God's forgiveness of us and the reconciliation that that produces. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul writes to Christians, and he says this, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Let's think about that. Have a soft heart with one another. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. What's Paul saying? He's saying that when somebody has sinned against you, there's no qualifiers here. He doesn't say if it's a sin that goes to this level, do what I'm saying. If it goes beyond that, you're off the hook here. He says when somebody has sinned against you, he's saying we need to get to a place where we're kind toward one another and where there's a soft heart toward one another and where we've truly forgiven one another. And Paul is an astute enough theologian and an experienced enough Christian to know that the only way any of us can ever get there with another person who has seriously sinned against us is to say, you got to model your actions and your feelings off of what God has done for you in Christ. This is the only way. How has God in Christ forgiven us? He's forgiven us freely and fully. He makes enemies into friends. He turns rebels into sons and daughters. The story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 is one of Jesus's most famous parables for a reason. And it's a story that depicts the father's reconciliation of rebellious children, i.e. you and me. It's hard to comprehend in our culture the level of insult and injury that this young prodigal son inflicted on his father. But in that culture, I'll say it this way, his father had the right to never speak to this boy again. This young man, his son, caused his dad unthinkable pain and harm to his reputation. 
First and foremost, this son was ungrateful to a dad who had blessed him in every way, had provided for him abundantly from all that we can tell was a wonderful father to his son. His son was ungrateful to his dad. He essentially tells his dad, I'm sick and tired of waiting for you to die so that I can get my inheritance. I want you to give me my inheritance today so I can leave you and go do what I want to do. Amazingly, the father acquiesces. And the dad has to go throughout all of the town, among all of his neighbors, and begin selling off his property to liquidate his assets so he can pay out his son. Do you know how ashamed he must have been? As people are going, why are you selling that field? Wait, 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 why are you getting rid of all this cattle and all of these things? What, what's, what's going on here? Well, my son, my son wants his inheritance. I mean, he was ashamed as he's out there liquidating his assets to pay out his son. And then to make matters worse, his son goes out. And he lives this reckless lifestyle. And he, he runs the family name through the mud, through his partying. And yet, when he comes to his senses, and he returns to his father, brokenhearted and repentant, we read that his father ran out and met him. His father wrapped his loving arms around him. He smothered his son with kisses and with hugs. He tells his servants, go get a robe and put it back on my son. Get these rags off of him. Redress him in his proper clothes. Put a ring back on his finger. Slaughter a fattened calf. We're having a party because my son who was lost has been found. And this is a picture of the way that God forgives us And what that reconciliation between us and God looks like. He wipes away our sin. He takes it as far as the east is from the west. He reclothes us in our royal garments as sons and daughters of the Most High. And he wants to be with us. And he throws a party. And he celebrates that we belong to him again. And friends, Paul says that's the model that you and I ought to model our own forgiveness and reconciliation off of. The longer I live and the more that I consider the gospel, the more I find my heart opening to worse and worse people and the fewer and fewer enemies I find I have. And may God help all of us to just meditate on and really grasp the depths of the gospel That you and I, we have been like that prodigal son against God and yet he lavishes grace and mercy and forgiveness on us. That will soften our hearts to begin the process of reconciliation with others. Well, Absalom here is in Jerusalem. But as I mentioned, he's kept from his father's presence. And this goes on for two whole years. Because of this, the author pauses and he does a quick portrait of Absalom so that we can better understand who the man is that has come to dominate the middle chapters of 2 Samuel. Here's his portrait. Look at verse 25. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. Absalom would have been on the cover of GQ. 
Absalom would have been voted sexiest man alive. There wasn't a blemish from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he had great hair. One commentator says the weight of what was cut off annually would have been somewhere around five pounds. That's impressive. I mean, I guess anything would be impressive to a guy like me, but I'm not insecure. You are. But this reference to his hair, (laughs) sorry, that was so silly. (laughs) What am I doing? So the reference to his hair, of course, just reinforces the first point, which is he's really handsome. He's got it all going on. It's, it's, It's just trying to put in front of us his impressive physical attributes. But this emphasis on his outward appearance should make the careful reader of Samuel suspicious and a little bit concerned. It should remind all of us of Israel's first king, King Saul. Here's what we read back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. It says, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Israel's first king who we learned through his story, was ruled by the flesh, not faith, and ultimately got rejected by God, was this incredibly attractive physical leader. He was outwardly impressive. And here's this heir to the throne who is outwardly impressive. And Absalom, like Saul before him, will easily capture the hearts of God's people. We are so easily captivated by um, the externals. Right by somebody who appears to have it all together. But we know God looks at the heart. God is concerned with character, and Absalom is going to lack it, and it's going to blow up in his face. So we're getting the character sketch here. It's setting the stage for what's going to come in Absalom's story. But I want you to notice there's also this mention of his children in verse 27. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. His three sons actually likely died in infancy. Because when you get to chapter 18, verse 18, we read that Absalom had no sons to carry on his name. But notice he also has this daughter that's born to him in Jerusalem. And she's named after his sister. And like her namesake, this Tamar is also a very beautiful young woman. And I couldn't help but read a note of hope in verse 27 here as I was considering this chapter. Last week, we talked about the heaviness of what happened to Tamar and how as a result of her being violated by Amnon, she was never able to marry. She was never able to have a family of her own. The text actually said in chapter 13 that she lived her life in Absalom's home, a desolate woman. It was heartbreaking. But I was reminded here this week that Tamar could not undo what happened to her. And she could not undo the consequences that irreparably damaged her future and her life going forward. But that didn't mean that she was unable to impact the life of someone else. Now, I know that having her niece named after her is in some ways a small impact. But I think it's it's a note of hope that is meant to lead us to the bigger and broader point. That again, she couldn't set right what had happened to her. 
She couldn't change the circumstances of her life going forward. And there are certain things that happen to us in our lives and we can't fix it. And this side of glory, it's not going to get better. But that doesn't mean that there is no future and there is no hope for you. Your life, just like Tamar's life, can still impact somebody else in God-honoring and beautiful ways. This last week, Pastor Ryan and I were at an annual luncheon and fundraiser for Hope Refuge, which deals with uh, sex trafficking and victims of sex trafficking here in Santa Barbara. And at Hope Refuge, they actually receive young women who have been trafficked, and it's a program to help them recover and rebuild their confidence and their skills and get help and then reemerge into society, healthy young women. And at this event, there was a woman who was the keynote speaker, and her story was amazing. Um, she herself was uh, a victim of the commercial sex industry in L.A. for over 10 years. Completely turned her life upside down, as you can imagine. She was a woman who, as she admitted, struggled to ever form, reform her identity. I mean, the impact of what had happened to her was so traumatic. But by God's grace, she has recovered by God's grace she understands her identity as a child of God. And what's amazing, and here's this woman now, and she runs a home in Los Angeles, similar to the Hope uh, Refuge up here in Santa Barbara, where she takes in women who are actually over 18, like herself, who had been victims of the commercial sex industry. She houses them, she ministers to them, and she helps these, one, these women. And it's such a beautiful story and picture of redemption. And the ways that, again, she can't undo what sinful men had done to her. But she's able to still continue moving forward in her life of faith, impacting other people, helping other people come to know Jesus and be reconciled to him and have the pieces of their life put back together. It's a beautiful picture in verse 27 of the hope of redemption in Tamar's life. In the final paragraph... The author picks up the story of Absalom's plight in Jerusalem. Let's read it, reflect on it, and we'll close together. Here's verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Absalom is over it. It's been five years now since the incident when he killed his brother. He has tried to get Joab to come to him and arrange a meeting between him and his father for two years and to no avail. Absalom is reaching out and Joab is completely ghosting him. So he's frustrated and he wants to take matters into his own hands. And the whole plan that Joab had quite literally turns into a dumpster fire as his own field is set on fire. But this was always destined to blow up in his face. David could not just leave the issues with Absalom unresolved 
forever. And here's the takeaway from that. You cannot resolve conflict by ignoring it. David had created a compromise. I'll leave him in Jerusalem, but he's not going to see me. He's going to be in his own house. So essentially, he's still exiled from the king. But you cannot resolve conflict by ignoring it. The whole thing blows up in his face. Now, this is challenging for most people because many of you, like me, you don't thrive on conflict. You don't enjoy conflict. You'd rather avoid conflict at all costs. There are some people who love it and thrive on it, but that creates its own set of problems. Most people would rather avoid conflict if you can. But I'll say it again, you cannot resolve conflict by ignoring it. This is true in business. If you've got an employee who's not working out, okay, and they continue to fail to meet the standards, and you just hope that they're going to get their act together, you don't want to have the hard conversations, you're just like, hey, hopefully this is going to sort itself out. Many of you here have experienced this. You know it will never sort itself out. If you don't deal with the issue, the issue will just grow. It will get worse. This is true in the church. Sin must be dealt with. This is why church discipline really, really matters. If we think that somebody who's perpetuating sin and continually living in sin and won't repent is just going to fix it all and make it better, we're being very naive. This is why Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We'll just grow. It will just get worse. This is true, of course, in the family. If a husband and a wife have conflict and they won't discuss it, they won't deal with it, they just try to ignore it, that's not the solution. Frustration and bitterness And anger will just fester and grow until there is a huge explosion or a huge blowout. Same is true with our children, right? If we fail to discipline our children because we don't want the conflict or we we don't speak up about something in our children's life because we want to avoid the conflict, it will only get worse and worse and worse. You cannot fix conflict by ignoring it. And David has tried to ignore it for two years And here it is all exploding. Joab here is enraged. He confronts Absalom, but Absalom stands his ground. He says, hey, this is actually your fault. I tried, I reached out, I called a couple times and you didn't come and I'm over it. Either I'm guilty and my father should have me killed or I'm innocent and he should stop treating me like this. I need to talk to my dad. And so finally, Joab at this point is moved to action. He arranges the meeting and David and Absalom will see each other. And this is where the chapter ends in verse 33. Then Joab went to the king and told him and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. Now I know at one level, it sounds like maybe reconciliation happened here. They met face to face. But I want you to notice that the language here in verse 33 seems more official than it does paternal. It says that he came to the king. Not that he came to his dad, not that he came even to David. He came to the king and he bows himself on the floor before David like a subject and not a son. David does kiss him, but it's likely an official kind gesture that people do, a kiss on the cheek. There's no mention of hugs. There's no mention of tears. There's no mention of any words exchanged between the father and the son. 
And notice most significantly, whatever this was, it did not satisfy Absalom. Because the very next verse, chapter 15, verse 1, is going to show us the beginnings of Absalom's conspiracy to kill his dad and take his kingdom away from him. So whatever this is, this is not full reconciliation. This is a fragile reconciliation at best. Chapter 14 begins in a promising way. Joab, probably with really good intentions, seeks to rectify father and son. He wants to reconcile them. He wants to bring the banished prince to his heartbroken father. But notice now that the chapter ends with a fragile reconciliation at best. As we're going to see very clearly in the next few weeks, this patching up is cosmetic at best. They're going through the external motions, but they are not dealing with the root cause of where this all, this all originated from. Therefore, this reconciliation will deteriorate. As we close, there's, there's one kind of larger takeaway I want us to ponder this morning. As you think about this whole chapter and as you set it into the broader context of the story of David and all of the sin that has transpired here, the big takeaway, I suppose, could be this, and commentator John Woodhouse makes a great observation that I think strikes at the heart of it. He says that in light of David's story here, it's abundantly clear that it takes more than human scheming to fix the destructive effects of our sin. Did you catch that? It takes more than human scheming to fix the destructive effects of our sin. That's a profound thought. I mean, look at, look at the situation here in these chapters. Capable Joab, the wise woman from Tekoa, the likable and determined Absalom, and God's anointed King David could not put right the havoc that sin had caused. Now, that's not to say that reconciliation couldn't happen or that reconciliation doesn't happen between two people. It can and it often does. But it is to say this, that David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah that is now years in the past has taken on a life of its own. And like a brush fire, it has ignited the entire forest. Everything is being destroyed. When you stop and think about it, the consequences of that sin back in chapter 11, adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband to cover it, The consequences of that sin indirectly opened the door for Amnon's rape of Tamar, which led to hatred in the heart of Absalom, which gave birth to murder of Amnon, which led to estrangement between father and son, which led to arson in a man's field, which led to a fragile truce, which will end in a coup and a civil war and the death of Absalom himself. All of the scheming, all of the wisdom in the world was not capable of fixing the damage and the destruction that David's sins sent outward like ripple effects into his family and throughout his kingdom. And the big lesson from 30,000 feet as we look down on this season in David's life is that only God in Christ 
can make us new creations and can undo all of the disastrous consequences of human sin. He is the only one wise enough and powerful enough to fix what we have messed up. Only he can save us. And for those of us who trust him to, save us he will. Amen? Amen. Family, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word. God, we are thankful for every single chapter, every single verse in the Bible. We believe it is all inspired. It is all God-breathed. And as Paul says, it is all profitable to us. God, we are thankful for this story that's recorded for us. God, it helps us to see the destructive effects of sin. The way that it produces so many unintended consequences. Estrangement and alienation between people. There's so much hurt that our sin causes. And God, we're so appreciative that you expose those things to us through examples like David. And God, we would pray that you would help to wisen each and every one of us up. We don't have to learn how to live wise and blessed lives only through trial and error. Sure, experience is a great teacher, but we can also learn through the example of others. We can also learn through the wisdom that your word gives to us. And Lord, I just pray for all of us that are followers of Jesus, that as we've been studying these really difficult and horrendous chapters in 2 Samuel, that God, you would produce in us a hatred for sin. God, that we would come to recognize that there is no such thing as a small sin or a trivial sin. That all sin can can actually have ripple effects that go outward and produce unintended consequences. God, would you make us wise? Would you help us to choose to live on the path of righteousness? Would we be a people who honor and obey your word and get to experience the fruit of a blessed and a peaceful life? God, I also want to pray for each and every one of us that, God, you would would help us if there are people in our lives that either we have sinned against or maybe they've sinned against us, that, God, this text and this sermon this morning would maybe just be a seed planted in our heart that the Holy Spirit can continue to water and that will ultimately begin growing up, that will lead us to seek reconciliation with people. God, I know for some of us, there are things that have happened that we just think, we're convinced, there is no way I could ever feel tenderhearted toward that person again. But God, on the authority of your word, we know that's not true. Sure, things may never be the same again, and that's okay. And in some senses and circumstances, that's actually right. But Lord, that does not mean that we are trapped to live with hatred and malice toward people for the rest of our lives. You, Holy Spirit, through the power of your word, can regenerate these places in our hearts and begin to change us for our good and for your glory. So Lord, whatever that means for each and every one of us, I just, again, just pray, Lord, that you would plant a seed today and that Holy Spirit, you would water it, that you would make us reflect you, God, more fully in the way that we forgive, the way that we seek forgiveness, and in the way that we are reconciled to other broken people. 
And Lord, we ask all of this now in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.